0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is sponsored by Words After War. Words After War is an emerging literary organization with a mission to offer fully funded opportunities for veterans, their families, and civilian supporters to share their stories. Words After War aims to build a supportive, creative community through writing workshops, studio retreats, and literary mentorships. The organization was co-founded by writers and longtime friends Brandon Willets and Mike McGrath, who aim to change the national conversation around veterans' issues by including civilians in that conversation. Their first writing workshop launches this fall in Brooklyn, New York, at Mellow Pages Library, and it's open to both veterans and civilians. The workshop will be led by writer and veteran Matt Gallagher, a former Army captain and the author of the Iraq War memoir, Kaboom. Matt is also a co-editor and contributor to Fire and Forget, short stories from the long war. Both of these books are published by DeCapo Press. For more information, go to www.wordsafterwar.com. That's wordsafterwar.org. They also have a Facebook page and a Twitter. Words After War, it's a literary organization for veterans and civilians. Go and support it. Oh, my God.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's
1: really
0: beautiful.
1: Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. you know, It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
0: And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Oh. Right. <laughs> right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is how I communicate with you. This is where a sizable portion of your brain is currently focused. Thank you for being here. I am Brad Listy, and I am talking to you from Los Angeles, California. I hope you're doing well out there, uh, wherever you happen to be. Davis Schneiderman is my guest today. He is, uh, among other things, a multimedia artist and the unconventional author of several books. The most recent of which is called "Sick," S-I-C. Uh, it is a novel now available from Jaded Ibis Productions. Davis and I are going to be talking in just a moment, Uh, but first, uh, a little bit about my weekend. I had uh, an active weekend. I was in Louisiana. I was traveling uh, for another wedding, so uh, for those of you keeping score, this is the fourth wedding that I've attended this year, all four of which uh, involved air travel. So I'm done for the year. It's been fun, but uh, I'm exhausted. My cousin uh, got married in a small town in South Louisiana where my dad grew up. So I flew out there with my family and, uh, you know, it's always a little bit nostalgic for me to go there because, uh, you know, I grew up going there. I grew up going to Louisiana for the holidays every year of my childhood, essentially, uh, we were down there at least once a year. So a lot of trips into the bayous, a lot of time spent uh, in New Orleans, in the French Quarter. The food, the aesthetic, the accent, the smells, the whole look of the place. It's all very familiar to me and uh, I feel very attached to it in my own way. So, you know, with this in mind, uh, I thought I would tell you about a couple of small experiences that I had. On my trip uh, involving music, experiences that interest me, and uh, you know, hopefully, they will interest you at least a little bit. <laughs> They're strange experiences, and and a little bit comical, perhaps, uh, maybe even a little bit sad. Uh, the first one happened in New Orleans last week. On my first full day in town, we were staying in the French Quarter. Uh, Which, uh, by the way, is an entirely different experience with a three-year-old. As you might imagine. Nothing belligerent. Just like some beignets and uh, some walking around uh, trying to avoid puddles. So, there I am. I wake up uh, that first full day in New Orleans. And uh, I'm in my hotel room on uh, Royal. And I go up to the gym to uh, exercise in the morning. This is how old I am. <laughs> I'm the old guy in the uh, hotel gym and I was on a treadmill uh, running and I was looking out uh, at the Mississippi River the The hotel gym was on the top floor, so I had a view which was actually kind of nice a panoramic vista. And uh, I was listening uh, to music on my headphones. It was on shuffle. And, uh, the no doubt song called a uh, simple kind of life <laughs> came on my headphones. And you know what? Y- yes. I like no doubt. Let me just get that off the table. I don't care what you think. Uh, I like no doubt. And I feel that, uh, Gwen Stefani is the best, uh, pure pop star of her generation. I like her. I think she seems like a nice person, and I could be wrong. But she just strikes me as being uh not a monstrous egomaniac like Madonna or others. You don't hear from her, you know. She just makes music. And uh, she's got a great physical look. It's almost like an anime character. Uh and she's got a good enough voice. But, you know, with some rough edges that uh, give it kind of an authenticity and uh, kind of a punk rock edge. I don't know. I just like her. Maybe it's because I live in Southern California. I like No Doubt. Why am am I defending this? (laughs) Are you judging me silently? Is that what's happening? So, uh, anyway, there I am. I am uh, listening to this song. And and, uh, do you know what song I'm talking about? Simple kind of life. It's the one where uh, Gwen Stefani is lamenting the fact that she is not a mother yet. It's kind of a midlife crisis song, and uh, it's really—I think—I think think it's a beautiful song. (laughs) So here's a little bit of it. You know what I'm talking about, this one? So, uh, the point is, it gets to me a little bit. That's what I'm saying. And uh, it really, uh, for some reason, got to me uh, on this treadmill in New Orleans in in a kind of unexpected manner. Because, you know, there's a lot of history in New Orleans. Uh, I don't know if you've been there before. But, uh, you know, when you're there, you can feel it. You can smell it. The build, uh, the buildings feel uh, feel old. You almost expect to see, like, Andrew Jackson, like, you know, riding down the street on horseback. It, it feels old. And, and I've got a lot of personal history there, family history, uh, grandparents, and so on who are no longer with us. And uh, there I am. I'm on this treadmill looking out at the uh, mighty Mississippi River pondering all of this while listening to Gwen Stefani, uh, pour her heart out about wanting to be a mom. And, uh, I got a little choked up <laughs> in a hotel gym, listening to, uh, no doubt. So it's, it's, it's just, it's too much. It's, it was too much to take in this moment. And, uh, like I said, I really like Gwen and this this song it feels completely authentically confessional to me i feel like she's really singing uh, from the heart have i been manipulated <laughs> uh, by Gwen Stefani have i been tricked was this song actually written by some uh swedish producer am i am i missing something uh but the the point is it, it happened actual tears were shed not a lot you know it wasn't like sobbing or anything but it was just like three or four uh, tears and uh, I'm wiping them from my face and maybe my nose uh, was running a little bit uh, while I myself am running on this treadmill and there are other hotel guests around me (laughs) so uh, naturally I am feeling self-conscious concerned that they might be uh, noticing my upset It was a strange moment. And uh, I'm just trying to let you know about it. And so, uh, but that's not all. There's actually more. (laughs) Uh, Later that day, as if this one uh, pitiful breakdown were not enough, later that day, uh, we were driving. I was driving my family across South Louisiana through the bayous uh, en route to the wedding. We had to be at the rehearsal dinner. So uh, I'm at the wheel of my rental car, my uh, 2013 white Toyota Camry. And my wife and my daughter, uh, they're both sleeping. They're taking a nap. And uh, I'm driving and the radio is on and we're traveling down a road uh, that I've traveled many times over the years. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a quiet moment. And I'm listening to the radio and suddenly uh, I hear a song that I have not heard in years. I don't even know how many years it's been, but it it was, it's a song that I heard a lot when I was uh, in junior high and it's called, uh, the lady in red. (laughs) Does anybody remember this one? Like I actually had to look it up online uh, to find out that it's by a guy named Chris DeBerg and it was a big hit in uh, 1986 which, which means that I would have been in 6th grade so here's a quick clip of uh, The Lady in Red uh, in case you're not familiar with it so it's a ballad and uh there I am. I'm driving. And this song is playing on the radio. And uh, suddenly I am hit by uh, another wave of uh, nostalgia and strange memories. And uh, you know, it was like all, it was like a a complete sense memory coupled with some actual like concrete visual memory like uh, which is to say I could recall all of a sudden uh, being very fascinated by this song when I was 11, the emotion in it, the story that it was telling. Like at that age, I didn't see this song as uh, being melodramatic. I didn't see it as any kind of exaggeration. I saw no effect. I just figured that this guy, (laughs) Chris DeBerg, was 100% serious about The Lady in Red. None of it was for show. And come to think of it, this might be a tendency of mine. Taking things at face value in music. Considering how seriously uh, I seem to have taken Gwen Stefani's uh, Pop Confessions. But if you can imagine me at age 11, in 6th grade, at a a school dance, in a uh, gymnasium. And this song is playing... The lady in red is playing on uh, large speakers and I am slow dancing uh, with a girl whom I barely know, who uh, has developed early and I'm terrified. So if you can see that, then you you start to get a picture uh, of how this figures into my life. And I had forgotten about it which is what, which is what interests me. And then, you know, hearing, uh, hearing it, all of it came rushing back, uh, the slow dancing, the fear. I even remember, uh, bits and pieces of the music video for this song, which I've since, uh, watched on YouTube. And I think for me at that age, uh, sad as it may sound, this song was a kind of map. <laughs> uh, it was like uh, th- this was essentially my understanding of of romantic love, and how it worked. In my mind, at the dawn of puberty, I took it completely seriously. I was like, "This is how it works. Uh, this is what happens. This is what you say when you fall in love." All the So, uh, <clears throat> uh, long story short, uh, as I was driving, I experienced uh, yet another surge of uh, nostalgia and emotion while listening to this song. I got choked up again, uh, briefly. Maybe not as bad as when I was in the hotel gym. It was just a, a brief catch in the throat. Maybe one tear. And, you know, what I, I, re- I realize that this sounds pathetic. I understand that. But, uh, you know, you have to understand I was driving through the bayous Reliving uh, A lot of memories And I was feeling very acutely uh, The passage of time So, there you have it Uh, Gwen Stefani, I should mention Is now pregnant uh, with her third child I believe that's true And uh, this seems like a happy ending uh, To the song in question As for Krista Berg I have no idea what his relationship status is with the uh, lady in red, or if he's even alive. So if anyone has any Chris Berg information, uh, please email me at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, My guest today is Davis Schneiderman. His new experimental novel, Sick, is now available from Jaded Ibis Productions. Very happy to have Davis here on the program, and I think you're going to really like our conversation. Davis is a smart guy. He has a big brain, and uh, we cover some interesting territory. So here he is, folks. This is Davis Schneiderman, and his new novel, once again, is called Sick.
1: I am uh, naked in the woods. I've been dropped with a compass and a three-day supply of beef jerky. Actually, I am in my office at Lake Forest College, where I am the associate dean of the faculty and the director of the Center for Chicago Programs. So my office has some nice glass windows that look out upon probably the most idiosyncratic building on our nice campus, which is a circular building with a bank of windows um, two stories. So I call it the Starship. My children call it the Mushroom House. Today is fall break, so nobody is here. And after I'm done speaking with you, I will probably go to the upper portion of the starship and look out at the delightful fall colors making their way in the waning moments of daylight.
0: Okay, so wait, is it changing there now? You guys are the yep. It's happening.
1: Definitely, definitely. It's happening. Uh, it's not as advanced as it uh, has been other points uh, in the past at, at this time of the year, but it's getting there.
0: Okay, so I want to talk to you about my one personal interaction with you, which happened to, i don't even know if you remember this, but we—, we had a brief hello at AWP in Chicago a couple of years ago, and you were making your way around the floor of AWP in a white Lycra (laughs) bodysuit.
1: I was, indeed. I remember speaking with you, and um, I'm not entirely sure I remember what you look like. I've seen pictures of you, but if I were to meet you in person, because the uh, world was inflected through the kind of see-through quality of the Lycra, which is indeed see-through. I was wearing that at the time uh, to express my mild antipathy for AWP. I've been going for many years, although I skipped last year and may skip this year. And I am always caught within the absurdity of the place. I enjoy seeing many of the the wonderful writer friends I've made over the years and and connecting with them and learning about new books. But I also feel uh, the kind of uh, crashing, pressure is the wrong word, but anxiety that the whole event produces, partially because of its relative inscrutability. It's also a high level of pretentiousness. Excuse me. And um, just some of the ways that um, I don't always feel all that happy to be there, despite the fact that I'm usually speaking happily to other people. So wearing the suit was an extension of something I had done the year previous, where I dressed up as a mime. And I went around from table to table, um, sometimes speaking, sometimes not. It would depend upon where I was going. When you saw me in the suit, I was going around pitching books to people through the suit. And I hooked up with the mascot from the Black Warrior Review, which was Gumby in a banana costume. It was a guy in two different costumes. So we walked around pitching Buddy Road novels. We'd walk up to the University of Wherever Press and say, do we have a book for you? And we would just improv the thing. And amazingly, we even had some interest here and there.
0: Well, you know, I I hear what you're saying about AWP, because I've only been once. It was that that one Chicago... AWP, mm-hmm. and I went almost out of a sense of kind of obligation. Like, I've got to at least see what this is because everybody on my computer screen is talking about it and it feels like prom or something. And yeah. um, so, but I went and I had like that same experience. Like, it was nice to meet a lot of people and I enjoyed those individual experiences, but I also found myself just sort of overwhelmed and like I needed to lie down when it was over with. You know, it was very uh, draining.
1: Yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. And I found the year that I dressed up in the white suit and the previous year when I was a mime, which was when my novel Blank was released, and I was thinking, how does one represent a blank novel, I guess, as a mime, that the people who were at the smaller press indie lit tables were very happy to interact with me because it looked like a pleasant spectacle. But I would walk very deliberately through the rooms at the end of the cattle call with the larger booths and the more moneyed institutions, and there um, people would turn away from me. They just did not (laughs) want to engage with me at all
0: well okay so here's uh, just to like uh bring it to a more m- immediate experience that is somewhat related like this morning i was reading the new york times and there was an interview with donna tart who's got this big novel coming out uh it's, i, think I saw that goldfinch so it's getting this big push it's like one of the big novels of the fall season and she she publishes like once every decade you almost never see her at any of these events in fact you don't see her she doesn't do any no. of it uh, she hates to do interviews. She basically just writes. She, uh, I, I'm very interested in her physical appearance because yeah. it's so uh, sc- manicured, sculpted. There's so much attention to detail. <laughs> and totally. I'm, I'm very intimidated by her. She's got, like, the Anna Wintour hair, and, like, I just feel like there's a searing intelligence at work. And there's a part of me that's like, okay, she's not messing around with any of this. She's just writing. And then there's another part of me that says – Well, yeah, she can. It really strikes me that the ultimate luxury or like the elite quote unquote writers um, who make a lot of money from their work, which is almost nobody, but these people who can support themselves in a comfortable way from their fiction, a lot of them don't participate. It's like the ultimate sign that you've made it when you just don't play with the rest of the people or you don't participate in any of the static that the rest of us sort of have to tolerate or immerse ourselves in. Like, is that a misreading? Do you agree?
1: Well, it's interesting because I guess I I don't know her work very well. I happened to read the same New York Times article over lunch just about an hour ago, and I was struck by many of the things that that you're commenting on. But it seems to me that the sculpted, alabaster, ethereal character of, of her presence is a type of performance that's maybe not all that different in kind, but certainly different in orders of magnitude from me wearing a mime costume or the, the, the white suit. I think of um, the David Shields thing, uh, the oral history on J.D. Salinger that came out not too long ago tied to that Change Lando documentary. And not that, you know, that there couldn't be a Salinger today or a Pynchon or a Tart. Those people can exist. But it's a performance and it's a performance in some senses exactly as you suggest of privilege, of the privilege not to have to be in, in, in the trench in the in the gutter with the others, although I think there are many writers, maybe not at that super, super famous level, who are perfectly happy to ply their trade and participate in the street. And there's all sorts of questions about people's motivations for that. Do they do it because they really enjoy the, the human contact? Does this part not do it because she really doesn't enjoy? The human contact or are all these just different levels of, of masquerade, which I guess is a little bit what I was attempting to do by putting on a Lycra suit.
0: Okay, so this is interesting, because I'm not my thoughts on this aren't fully fleshed out, but like I've been thinking about this with regard to uh, her. Dave Eggers has another big novel that's coming out, and like because of the because of the fact that I do this show, I'm thinking, well it would be great to talk to both of them because people would be interested in hearing from them. Of course, right. it's like impossible to talk to them, which is sort of frustrating from my perspective. And then I think to myself, you know, like there's a lot of brand management at work. And I really, like I've said this before in this program, like I loathe that using that terminology to describe what people do, but that's precisely what it is. And these people who pretend to not participate are very actively participating and like manicuring their little brand and like presenting themselves to the public in a way That, I mean, is this the way that you do it? Like you present yourself as kind of regal and removed from it because, you know, do you understand what I'm saying?
1: Totally. And if you think of an example of somebody like Tao Lin, who it's completely the opposite, right? There he's managing his brand by over-engagement, so much over-engagement that um, it's deliberately offensive and odious and tiring. And if you're one of the people who's turned off by that, you then, quote, don't get the joke, quote, and so therefore, it sort of succeeds for the fact that it's failing with you because you're not hip enough to, to get the message in the first place. For somebody like Eggers, and he's actually from Lake Forest, and there's a, a colleague of mine in the history department whose son was the co-editor with Eggers of their first literary journal, which I think they did at Lake Forest High School called Might right. or Mighty, something like
0: that. No, it's called but, Might Magazine.
1: Might magazine, right. And so, you know, we've talked over over time here, like should we invite Dave Eggers? Wouldn't that be an interesting person? And maybe eight or nine years ago I began to look into that. And what I discovered is he has an an agency, not surprising, and there was sort of a minimum entrance fee to even get him to think about coming. Not that it was an unrealistic fee, I think it was like ten grand just to sort of, you know, for his agent to take it seriously because many writers cost more than that. But once you can command the the middle people, the publicist, the agent, then you're adding all of these other other trappings of brand management brand management that can in some some ways become self supporting. They work better if your books sell, but they often help your books to sell by the fact that you've got this apparatus working um, toward the sales. Of your work and the uh, you know the embellishment of your persona, it's kind of a self feeding beast that doesn't you know. uh, And one more quick thing, that doesn't mean there's not actual quality to some of these writers. That just means you know they have distribution, they have mechanisms behind them.
0: Okay, yeah, but see, here's the here's what I keep thinking. Like I find myself recoiling from that, and I find myself thinking, I I want no brand management. I want a world of no brands. Yeah, (laughs) I want to have no brand. I just want to be a person. Not a brand. I want to be a person talking to people without brands in between us. And is that just idealistic? Like, Again, I'm not fully fleshed out on this, but like, I find myself instinctively recoiling and wondering about people who engage at that level of intensity or... I don't know. Uh,
1: no, I get it. Oh, <laughs> we just... I, I promise I will not talk all about Lake Forest College this entire time, but we just happen to have um, for one of our big lectures a guy named Ross Martin about three weeks ago who is an executive at Viacom, and he was just named Fortune Magazine's under, 40 Under 40, but his whole business is marketing to millennials. And dealing with exactly these ideas of brand management, but often in ways that are supposed to seem um, not obvious or not old school or somehow innovative because of what they are. So he sort of channels or looks for ways to channel youth culture and um, put it into brand expressions that are meant to, rather than be cloying or Madison Avenue overkill, meant to engage you in some sort of authentic way. And on some level, I really appreciate what he's doing. I differ with him once we get to the authenticity. I don't think it's authentic at all. But I believe that he and people like him really believe that one can express oneself through a brand and that a brand is not merely a product but a way of um, communicating with the world. And unfortunately, I think we live pretty deeply in that world now, whether you have um, a publicist staff or whether you're just someone um, using an iPad.
0: Well, that's the thing. It's like – I mean – I have a brand. I have a logo for this show. Um, I have book out. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, Mm -hmm. maybe there's. It's like there's no way to avoid it. But there's a part of me, I guess, that wants to be intentionally bad at it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, As like kind of like almost like a tantrum or some sort of revolt against it or something. And I don't know. I just I want to know how to feel about it. And I guess I was hoping you could tell me, but.
1: Well, you, um, so I'm looking at your logo now and you have, I guess this is a gas mask, but the cartoon version of you, is it you? Is that a drawing yeah, of you? Yeah,
0: yeah. It's, me. it's me.
1: So what motivated the, the gas mask? Was it some expression of this idea you're saying now?
0: No, I mean, it's like, uh, you want to know the truth? I had this guy uh, over in England. He's an artist. I liked his work and I asked him to draw a logo and I was like, I need a logo for the show. And he's like, do you have any pictures of yourself? So I... I Took a photo with my computer, you know, just with like the built-in, ca- you know, camera. Yeah. And I sent it to him, and then he sent me back the uh, initial drawing, and I just looked, uh, kind of, I don't know what. Like, just I didn't like the way that I looked.
1: <laughs> and
0: so I sat there looking at it, and I'd already asked this guy to go through the process of drawing me, and then I was like trying to figure out like a workaround, and it struck me that we could put a gas mask on me and some like lab goggles which i thought was sort of like a funny play on other people you know like yeah. engaging with other people with like a industrial strength gas mask on or whatever so it was all accidental it was all accidental and it just made me laugh and it fixed the way that my you know my face looked
1: <laughs> well that's interesting but aside from the fact that you're dealing with other people with radioactive not quite radioactive but protective gear I mean, it's also a comment on the fact that you're not just dealing with other people, you're dealing with authors and authors are full of brand bullshit. And in some way you're uh, mounting a defense against that. That's also a logo. So that's really interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe maybe that's part of what this is. It's like I'm trying to like have conversations with authors that, you know, take place on a plane of conversation that is hopefully like uh, removed or largely removed from traditional media press tour stuff. You know, that's. That's a part of it that I think is uh, central, you know, to, to what I'm trying to do at least.
1: And the only place I would probably differ with you there, and it's not that I don't admire that motive, but I suppose, and this is a little bit what my book Sick is about, is I don't think you can ever get past that place. I think even when people have their best intention, even when they're speaking authentically and humanly and in their most kind of appropriate way, that's not meant to be full of um, author marketing bullshit. Uh, I'm not so sure that's possible.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, either, you know, I think it's just, maybe it's all in the effort and every once in a while you, you get there, you know, I can feel moments where things get, you know, seem to leave that realm and get really authentic in a human way. Um, and it feels good. It's kind of like, I think, you know, it when you hear it, but I'm not, yeah. I'm not entirely sure if, uh, the process itself of arranging these calls. I mean, obviously you have a book out, you have multiple books out. That's one of the main reasons why we're talking. Yeah. You know? Um, and so I wanted to ask you uh, because I feel like your literary uh, career and your approach to it is uh, unique, you know, but particularly among the authors that I've talked to, in the sense um, that, for one thing, you know, there's a very strong performative aspect to your approach. Um, just the fact that you would show up at AB, uh, AWP in a lycra and a white lycra bodysuit uh, distinguishes you from many of your colleagues.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, almost all of them. So yeah, Gum, Gumby banana. So. Yeah,
0: okay, yeah. So I mean, like, talk. Uh, you know, I want to hear you explain why uh, you do that. I mean, you see, I mean, obviously, you have a, a comfort level that a lot of writers might not have uh, from a performative perspective. But like, how does that originate within you, and why do you do these things?
1: That's uh, interesting. Thank you for that question, and I don't think I always felt that way. And I recall being in graduate school or really beginning to write in my early 20s and feeling a a great antipathy toward the audience, a great sense of, um, well, if the audience doesn't get it, it's their fault, and and probably being a, a little too overdone with my own sense of cleverness. And so my early work was very dense, very packed with all sorts of postmodern literary history, and probably to some small extent negatively inflected by my graduate school experiences, where I felt like I had to process, every possible thing there was The process through the text. I wasn't interested in, in, in emotion or connection on that level because I, I was and probably still am suspicious of the way books manipulate our feelings, of the way any media manipulates our feelings. This is why I'm not a romanticist in any sense of the word at all. And sometimes that's taken me to extremes of um, cerebral um, intellectual production that doesn't connect with anyone at all. And I'd like to think that part of the performative aspect emerged with a growing desire as I got a little bit older to connect with the audience. And so I began to realize, oh, you know, people are spending time with me, listening to me, and not that it's my duty to spoon-feed them some ridiculously easy-to-digest feeling of entertainment, but it's also kind of a dick move for me to do the opposite. And... Um, make them feel like they've wasted their time. and I, The performance then is a compromise position where I try to develop ways of um, making people be happy to be there or at least not feel um, angry by being there. God knows I've gone to so many readings and events um, over my life that are a complete waste of time and I don't feel anymore that I learned something by that. Like, oh, great, now I know what I don't like. Now I just feel like that's my time, motherfucker, and my life (laughs) is short, and you've taken it from me.
0: Well, no, but, you know, this uh, two things come to mind. First of all, um, you know, because you're an academic, I think of teaching. I've taught before. Uh, I think that there is an uh, underdeveloped notion of the teacher as a performer that I think needs more attention. Like, if you're going to stand in front of a bunch of students and... Try to Im- impart uh, knowledge. You know, you should be aware of the fact that they need some level of entertainment. It's not just a, a divulging of facts, and they take notes, and then you leave, and you expect it to be like a good experience for them. And I think the same could be said for readings. It's like if you're gonna if you're gonna make people come out to a bookstore or wherever it is and listen to you read, uh, I think there's something sort of courteous about trying to entertain them in a in a, uh, a unique way, a genuine way.
1: Completely, and what's the point of listening to someone who's not a good reader, performer, interpreter of their own work? I don't need to hear you read it out loud then. I can just read it on my own, and I've never quite understood the the prevalence of public reading culture when you think about um, that contradiction. If what we care about is the book and the text, why do we care about whether we hear the person read it, and why, if that person is is more famous, does that seem to take on some greater authenticity? I, I don't buy it. And I feel that anyone, whether they are starting out or whether they're well-established in in their career, um, has, if not an obligation, then at least a quasi-obligation to understand why the audience is there.
0: Okay, so do you have any predecessors that you feel did this? Like, you know, do you have any literary forebears who approach things in the way you approach things? Because I'm trying to call to mind, you know, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of people who went out in lycra like bodysuits no, <laughs> or the equivalent. But I mean, are there people that, you, you know, are there shoulders that you're standing on that I might not be aware of?
1: You know, I, I, I can't pick out any, any writer that comes to mind, particularly with the exception of a person who's been really important for my academic career and that's um, William Burroughs and not that he would have ever gone out in a lycra like bodysuit, you know, God forbid, <laughs> but he had a deliberate performative style and there was the kind of, you know, the drawl, the, the, draw, the sardonic, the satiric in the way that he delivered it. That was very compelling. He used this vocal tone, this affectation, this this character of himself that he had created. It was meant to be someone authentic there where mine's not. And he would deliver it and deploy it again and again in a way that he knew to be deliberately entertaining. Put much more simply, he read his own work well, and I think that's sort of the baseline, the number one thing you have to do. But in terms of the actual performance, I think much more of people like Andy Kaufman or Groucho Marx or Charlie Chapman are are my forebearers probably more so than um,
0: John Irving. Right. Well, okay, so and then, you know, obviously there's, you know, uh, I – I forget exactly how you put it earlier when you were talking about why you do it. But one of the elements that uh, strikes me is that you know it's a way to get attention for work that might exist uh closer to the periphery than the center of the literary conversation by nat- by nature of its experiment, you know, its experimentalism. Um I mean, do you see your work that way? It would seem like a novel like Blank or a novel like Sick or a, a work like Sick would be um You know, falling outside of the mainstream of uh, contemporary literary, uh, you know, Barnes & Noble. No, completely.
1: The the novel that came before Blank and Sick, which are two-thirds of the Dead Books trilogy, the third one coming out next year being Ink, a book completely dipped in ink was a novel that I wrote with actual words, quite long, called Drain, which was about a near future where Lake Michigan empties of water, a whole bunch of disenfranchised peoples move in, and after a period of time, a planned community corporation moves in. and It's about the conflict of those two. It came out from Northwestern uh, in 2010, tri quarterly. I probably spent six years, maybe seven, working on that book. I'm very proud of it. It was well-reviewed when it was reviewed. And, um, you know, it was, it was a modest success, but I also felt because it was assaultive and had a lot of heavy sci-fi elements and linguistically unsettling and deliberately difficult to read and deliberately not giving you a lot of the things that, um, people often want from books plot, character, those things were there but they were um, deliberately complicated in ways that were more or like Kathy Acker the the dead book stuff was definitely a response to that, for me Lake Michigan where I live uh, right nearby was, was a big vast emptiness and I explored it as far as I could in words so blank in a way was just another exploration of that blank reflective mirrored space that I see almost every day when I go a mile away from my house and I feel that the performance aspects that I used when I'm reading from Drain or when I'm doing these other things with Sick and Blank and Dead Books um, is a way to bring that blankness um, to the forefront, to bring the emptiness of performance, the emptiness of character, the emptiness of persona, uh, the emptiness of, of a public reading into relief in some way. They're, they're meant to be destructive, I think, at the same time as, uh, as entertaining.
0: Well, okay, so uh, they're, they're also art objects. Mm -hmm. You know, so like I think that you're concerned, uh, among other things, I think that you're concerned with the book as object in ways that maybe or or at a level of intensity that might surpass most writers. I also think that you, like David Shields, you know, he comes to mind when I think of your work, uh, do a lot of thinking about what a book is in ways that, you know, I think a lot of writers uh, of fiction or nonfiction are simply or primarily concerned with story and with executing a good story somehow or a good character study or whatever it is um but i'm kind of there with david shields and with you in that i think a lot about like w- what else can we do with this what is this doing and like how can it change like i'm very uh, excited by experimental ideas around literature i am very excited by the work of burroughs you know because of that and um you know, is he the one that got you? I mean, obviously you're a Burroughs scholar, so he obviously uh, had a big impact on yep, you. But totally. is that what set you on your course, and have you come to any conclusions about this stuff?
1: There's a lot of questions there, and um, <laughs> I'm trying to think how to best parse it. Burroughs certainly was one of the writers who sent me on the, the course of my own thinking about literature. And what I liked about a book such as Naked Lunch when I was 17 – and couldn't understand it as opposed to being thirty eight now and not being able to understand it <laughs> with it with exactly that that i uh, the the more I read it, the less I know, which is a bit how I feel about my own life the more I live uh, the, the less I know i um sometimes feel a lot but learn nothing. The older I get I'm not more like myself I'm more like a kind of temporary masquerade of of someone else I don't think i'm I'm learning more as I'm going and so literature that interests me. We just had a big event for the centennial of um, Proust-Swan's Way, which would seem to have almost nothing in common with the type of work we're suggesting, except that it does. Because it falls apart. It's a book 3,200 pages long that is too big for even the author to completely understand or keep consistent, and names change. Not many. There's things that aren't standard from book one to book four. And it takes excuse me, a human so long to read it that it's unapprehendable. You're changed from the day you begin the first part to the day you win the last part simply because you're older. Even if you read as fast as you could, you can't barrel all the way through it. So even while I find conventional realist literature, even of the sort of good literary variety, um, sometimes entertaining, I also find it more often than not disappointing because I see its contrivedness, which I think is what David Shields is reacting against in something like Reality Hunger and where I, I certainly agree with him.
0: Well, I'm the same way. I find, like I just talked about this on the show, uh, in a monologue not too long ago. Is that I have such trouble accessing uh, traditional uh, fictional narrative because I'm constantly trying to to pick it apart and figure out what's going on with the author, or just to like look by you know look at the gears of the machine, and it's like yeah you know I feel like there's almost something wrong with me. It's like this distraction, and I can't shake it. You know, do you do that as well?
1: Totally. And what I find is that I am incapable unless I really try hard of picturing images. What I only see when I read, even if it's the most beautifully described image, is the architecture of the sentence. I see the words and the way the words are put together. If someone says, I'm in a big green box you know, at the bottom of a lake, I, I just see those words. I have a very hard time picturing the lake unless I stop and think about it. I would be much more interested in reading Stephen Crane or someone who's a kind of historical realist just for the historical aspect. Oh, realism is a response to romanticism or gothic literature than I would be picking up, you know, name your novel that is um, kind of realist on the New York Times uh, bestseller list. But there's something... Uh, there's something there when I'm reading that makes me want to know about the author, but I also recognize the limits of that and that what I think I know about the author is um, bullshit. And so I also don't want to get stuck in that trap. I'm really, I would have never been interested in meeting William Burroughs, um, even though I spent 15 years studying his work. The person doesn't interest me that much. It's the work that interests
0: me. Yeah. See, I think I'm somewhere in between. Like I find myself, especially if I like somebody's work, Uh, and I, and I, especially if I read, you know, somebody's full body of work, I almost always turn to literary biography after that and want to know like what was going on. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's like I become a detective almost. It's like, okay. So, and, and, you know, it's always a very satisfying experience for me because, you know, there's always life corollaries and a good literary biography provides that sort of uh, blueprint, you know? But
1: do you think you never ever minimizes your view of the work, and, and maybe it doesn't because you've read enough of the person's work, but I could see oh, I've read one book by, this is not you, but here I am, I'm 15, and I just read a book by Ernest Hemingway, and I really enjoyed it. Now I'm going to read, you know, name your Hemingway biography to learn what it's all about. Uh, is there is there a danger for you? Do you ever come away with less of an appreciation of the author?
0: I do. I mean, I can sometimes, I mean, like Hemingway is a good example where I can find out things about his personal life and Um, You know, you evolve over time. I can feel sort of shitty being judgmental of the man because his work is, you know, was important to me and still is important to me, you know, but especially when I was young, I really responded to it. But then, you know, the way he... um Treated women or I don't know. There's just some bu- like bullying behavior, you know, where you, Oh yeah. You read the literary biography, such an asshole to like Scott Fitzgerald and a movable feast. And you're just like, man, you know, it's, it can make a, a rereading of that work, a completely different experience. But I like knowing that stuff because I think it humanizes the author. It takes them off of a pedestal that they would otherwise live on. Um, you know, and I don't know. That's just my taste. I, I mean, I'm doing this show. That's part of Again, it's part of the impulse, um, you know, writ large or illustrated. I, I like to know about people who make work like this. You know, who who have the impulse to write. I'm as interested in that as I am in the work. Almost.
1: I sometimes wonder if Hemingway and Fitzgerald really had beef, or if it wasn't just a kind of East Coast-West Coast rap thing. If it wasn't <laughs> just to, to sell records. You never know. You know I'm- I'm not so sure that, um, I guess that's what I'm saying. To me, the biography is just another type of textual work with all the limitations of, of a novel, but just um writ differently. And therefore, I don't know if I ever get a better sense of the author. I sometimes just get a, a different sense. That doesn't mean I don't read biographies, because I do sometimes. But to me, they're just another, uh, you know, another book about a particular person.
0: Okay, so what do you read? I mean, what what do you read for pleasure?
1: Yeah, that's hard because I think as I, I get older and partially because, you know, my job is teaching or I run the Center for Chicago Programs here, so I read a lot of Chicago-related stuff. It's hard for me to read a book for pleasure that I'm not thinking about reviewing or writing about or doing an interview with someone for the Nervous Breakdown or any of these other things. And therefore, uh, this, is, this is something that's... Um, Complicated in my reading experience. I am right now reading Panin by uh, Nabokov, which I never read. I hope I'm saying that right. It's P N I N about this. You know, it's kind of an academic farce about this professor. And while I really like Nabokov, I'm finding it to be much less satisfying than uh, the last one I read by him, which was the memoir, Speak Memory. And I was thinking of all these things that someone like David Shields or other people working with these issues would talk about, about where that line between fiction and biography, when it's done well and complicated, as it is in Speak Memory, can be way more satisfying than what I'm seeing in Panin, which is a very competently well-written mid-century novel that I've read versions of 70 other times before, whether it be Beckett or Pynchon or these other people. I sort of have read broadly enough that I'm not that excited by it, but I'm more excited by the book by any particular writer that, that again, does something different or that doesn't make sense to me.
0: Well, I'm excited by hybrid forms increasingly. I guess I always kind of have been drawn to that, but is that what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I think sometimes it's it's a hybrid form. It's something like Steve Thomasula's VAS, V-A-S, if you don't know that book. That's a, that's a great one. It's full of these. Uh, it, it's a rewriting of a Victorian romance called Flatland, a romance in many dimensions. And it is then a modern adaptation of that that has all sorts of imagery and... Um, visually designed pages that allow the reader to experience what Thomas was writing about, a character named Square and a character named Circle, uh, in a way that much more is um, mimicking hypertext. So that's a good example of A hybrid form. A hybrid form, I like to think, is what I'm doing in Sick or Blank, where I'm taking the physical space of the book, and I'm changing what you would expect to see, or to go back to Shields again, um, even though there are plenty of essays written with numbers, like Reality Hunger, or does he use numbers? I believe he does. Yeah, he does. Just the idea that he is deliberately quoting, and the whole thing is these quotations. It's not. It's a lot of his work as well, but people think, oh, it's all quotations. That's interesting to me because it's showing you the tear. It's showing you the theme. I think of a writer like Lance Olson, someone who does this that I like. Janice Lee. I mean, there's so many people whose work is still exciting to me, but unfortunately, more often than not, they are um, from smaller presses, with exceptions.
0: Okay, so with uh, Sick, you are taking... Uh of public domain text yeah. and collaging.
1: Yes, yeah. so the book has three parts. The first part is 25 excerpts of work that are in the public domain. These works are before 1923 and therefore open to anyone. I begin with the earliest work of English quote poetry, it's Old English, Tim, and work my way up to the European version of Ulysses, which is in the public domain, the US version is not. So there's two pages of the Canterbury Tales in Middle English, but by me, this is very important. My name has to be on each page or at the beginning of each excerpt. The third part of the book is all work from after 1923, where we are in the copyright period, but I have not violated anyone's copyright. In fact, I have only used public domain works or fair use. I took a recipe from a World War II cookbook. Recipes are not under copyright. Here's where I've maybe um, done a fair use. I've taken the first 30 tweets on Twitter and typed them out. I took the first YouTube video and transcribed it. I took the transcript of the moon landing and republished it uh, just a little bit, where Armstrong walks on the moon and says his famous quotation. Each of these excerpts is now by me. The middle portion of the book is the Jorge Borges story, Pierre Menard, author of The Quixote, about a guy who wants to write Don Quixote. So he gets himself into the mindset of Cervantes, begins writing, and he writes Don Quixote. It's all about authorship. I Google auto-translated that story according to its own translation history. It's 1939, Spanish to Estonian to Japanese. Twenty transformations later, I have something that is gobbledygook, but it still has the names from Borges's original story. So that's the only place that I have perhaps violated the copyright, or perhaps I have simply created a new transformative work that operates on fair use principles. But since that's what the story is about anyway, that's where the little tension exists. The images that are in the book of me and the Light pursuit around Paris are meant to be images of a bacillus, a pathogen. And if you were to buy a $25,000 version of the book, which can exist as a fine art edition, it would come with a pathogen that you could choose to deploy upon the text to make yourself sick. Think about copyright, and there's only one more little plank here. The same day the book is released, I'll release 25 full-text e-books of the works I've excerpted in the first third. So all of the Canterbury Tales in Middle English by me on Kindle uh, or on Kobo or Nook. All of these ways of kind of flooding the market with these texts and simply in a Duchampian way sticking my name on it.
0: Okay, so I mean, and, and then what? And that's the motivation. It's like it's an it's an art experiment. Like, why do this?
1: Yeah. I don't believe that by doing it, I am tricking anyone. Clearly, all of these works that are in the first section of the book uh, readers would know or have seen before. You're going to see the Ode to a Grecian Urn, and you're not going to think it's me attempting to write poetry from that period. You're going to see Hamlet and recognize the lines from Hamlet that are recognizable because I always think the beginning of all of these texts also. So where Duchamp maybe put his name on a urinal and called it art, right? He put his name on the thing that isn't art and said, look, now it's art. I'm putting my thing on my name on art that already exists and just calling it my art. And what I mean to do is comment upon... The way users make books today, right, where users create content in the age of Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and remixes and mashups and David Shields and all these other things we've been talking about, it seems to me to be a very problematic position to constantly be going back to your own genius and your own authentic thing that's inside you that only you can do. So this is a collage. It's a remix. It's an edit. It's an appropriation. It's meant to be provocative, but it's also not meant to trick you at all in the same way it blank you shouldn't be surprised when you open it up and it's blank it says it right on the cover
0: (laughs) right right uh so when you were constructing sick and you were Mm -hmm. deciding about you know sequencing and how to you know like were you thinking narrative were you thinking i'm trying to form some sort of story like what was the mental process there
1: I certainly was thinking of the best way to to arrange or what I wanted to be. So I decided at some point there's some numerical symmetries, 25 in the first... 25 at the end. And in some ways, those are meant to be in dialogue with each other. So Cadman's hymn is this simple um, piece of West uh, Essex poetry. And later on, I have a um, genetic code from the early 90s that is a simple piece of um, amino acids being organized that would almost look like a visual poem in a language that most of us, including me, can't understand. So I was very aware of the way that there are textual similarities reaching across and between the various gulfs of time, but I didn't want it to be a story, aside from the chronological, because each section proceeds chronologically, uh, that, that says anything other than here are appropriations one can make, and if one were following along chronologically, the appropriations would take this particular order someone could write a version of this book that would have a completely different set of appropriations it wouldn't be cadminton it would be the dream of the rude from 200 years later it wouldn't be um chaucer it would be um every man and so why have i chosen the things that i've chosen um I don't think those motivations are always entirely clear to myself, with a few exceptions. I did take Ulysses, because uh, Ulysses, at least in the United States, is still under copyright. And I wanted that to be the last section of Part 1, which is all those public domain works, to draw attention, as the entire book does, to what does copyright mean exactly. Back in 1710, copyright term was 14 years after the work of art was made. And now it's 70 years plus the death of the author. I don't think that's really to defend authors. That's to defend the Disney Corporation and publishers.
0: Right. I was going to say, what are your feelings on copyright? Because I know when I read, you know, Shields obviously has strong feelings about this. And I mean, are you in line with him in terms of being able to use text and reconfigure and mash up and do the kinds of things that, you know, hip hop artists do in music with literature?
1: Uh, totally. I had been moving in this direction for a long time. And then in 2005, I had the good fortune to um, meet DJ Spooky, who was in Chicago for a couple days. And he came up to Lake Forest College and did a performance. And he'd had, he had come in a little late, and we were getting ready in the green room for him to come out and do this demo of the work he was, he was doing at the time, which had to do with his MIT book, Rhythm Science. And all of a sudden, he was like, David, help me get these together. And he pulled out a, a sheath of CDs, that he had burned different mixes on. And he wanted me to help put the stickers on them and put them in the, uh, the the kind of little plastic sheets that went with them. And he gives them out to people. And I was like, wait, you're, you're giving away this for free? And he's like, yeah. I think if people are coming to my lecture and coming to my talk – I want to give them something, and that's a little bit of the gift economy. I mean, I'm sure he feels it comes back to him in in people buying his records. But the idea that he freely took most of the materials that he uses to make his work, and that at certain times he freely gives of the combinations that he's made, really inspired me to think of my own writing as um, the work of a DJ rather than a writer. I sort of stopped thinking of myself as an author with a capital A who has something special inside me that needs to come out, and thinking of myself as somebody who is. You know, going through the vast record store dustbin of the 20th and 21st century and beyond, and pulling out these old vinyl albums of text, like I've done in "Sick," and I'm laying them on in different combinations.
0: Okay, that's an interesting point because I feel that way a lot of times too. When I sit down in front of the computer to write, uh, I think you know I can be stifled by this notion that like every, everything's been said before. Like my God, like what could I possibly add to the conversation? Especially with the internet where everyone's chattering constantly. You get, get like, a really acute sense of the saturation. And so it's, like, what to do with that, you know? And I think some people can drown that out or ignore it or don't care about it, and they're perfectly content to uh, create stories, which I'm grateful for, because I like a lot of those stories, um, you know, and I I like narrative. But personally, I just, I don't know. I I guess that's just not my thing, and uh, it sounds like it's not yours either. Um, But do you ever find... I mean, did did you have a pre existing um, aspiration to write more traditional books that was then sapped by reading <laughs> reading so many? <laughs> do you, know that, re-
1: you know, that's really interesting. And Burroughs used to say that he always wanted to write a bestseller and just would sit down to do it, and it would turn into you know the other weird shit that he did. <laughs> I'm not so sure. I think writing a bestseller or writing a, a book that follows conventional form is a real accomplishment and takes someone who has a, has a real understanding of pacing and plot and organization in ways that um, are sometimes frustratingly conventional, but also not so easy to make in a way that's actually compelling if you've read a good conventional book, and there are many that are among my favorites. But I think that somewhere along the line, I, I definitely did Think that I might try writing differently, and this was in graduate school. I would go into workshops, and I was writing, you know, more narrative work, but certainly in the experimental tradition. And reading all this other experimental stuff, and I remember people in the workshops just feeling saying to me, "Oh, why can't you just say it clearer? And why can't you just work on this character and do this? Don't you know? Do don't do that." And I'd already become very suspicious of getting an academic degree in creative writing. And I made a uh, deliberate decision then to not pay attention to any of that to take my courses mainly in the comp department and in philosophy and theory and then the things that seemed really interesting to me rather than sort of, you know, thinking about the structure of the short story. And I deliberately moved away, perhaps for a while too far away from um, some of the people who were, were giving me static that I didn't like. Now, I sometimes write things that are more conventional. I write for the Huffington Post, as I think you know, and then I sit down and I think, well, let me write an 800-word essay that my aunt would like to read. That's the, the conceptual constraint I give for myself. But I'm not too often in the position where I say, let me make a you know a heartwarming story that will get me an agent and get me onto the New York Times bestseller list. One, because I'm not interested in it. But two, I'm not so sure I could do it if I wanted to.
0: Okay, so that's a good point, because this is what I think about myself. I think it about Shields when I read Reality Hunger. Uh, it's possible that it could be applicable to you as well. Um, but I think sometimes... Uh, in my own mind, or you know, in the work of a guy like David uh, Shields, you know, it can come off as an indictment of a certain kind of literary art and like a broad dis- disdain for it, um, right. which I think is maybe part of the truth. But it's also a reaction against the limitations of one's own talent. Like, I don't think that my own personal tastes and sensibilities fit in that box, and I think like I'm reacting against that and trying to figure out where I do fit. Like do you think that your work has that component to it as well? I mean is that does that predominate over maybe uh, a dissatisfaction with more traditional forms?
1: No, definitely not and I would also differ with you in in the idea of maybe feeling that I didn't have the talent. I would never use the word talent. I would feel like I didn't have that particular skill set that would allow me to do that just like I don't have the particular skill set that will allow me to build an extension on on a deck
0: in my backyard. But what's the difference between talent and skill set? I mean, isn't it essentially the same thing? Oh, so
1: talent to me is a word that is um, highly highly vectored in with these other romantic ideas that, you know, writers have a special something, that something (laughs) manifests as talent, and those who are talented rise to the top. I don't believe any of that. I'm not saying that everyone in the world can write with equal skill, but I think that the definition of skill is far from universal. And therefore, I do not feel that I am making sick or blank because I am a failed conventional novelist. I'm just not interested in being a conventional novelist, one, because I'm not sure I could do it, but two, more importantly, because I don't value the categories of skill or talent or genius or authenticity that would maybe be most useful if I were trying to do that.
0: Okay. That seems healthier than my approach.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm not beating myself up saying, oh, my God, if I could only write, write this, I just, it's not what I'm interested in. Now, there's another big part of this, which I recognize is extreme privilege. I'm a full professor at a small liberal arts college. Here I am having all the fun I could possibly have in the world. I have supportive colleagues. I, I got tenure for writing these works. I have no economic incentive to sell books. I would love to sell books, and I I hope that I do, but I don't need the income from that to survive, and I'm not working at a job that I hate in order to become a writer that will then live off that income.
0: Okay, I was just going to say that, because, you know, that's part of my issue, is that I'm trying to figure out how to be a writer who can somehow support himself. And so you have this great situation where you have a tenure-track professorship that gives you financial stability, I think think for a lot of writers, they're just you know it's it's like trying to untangle a ball of yarn or figure out like how can I do this in a way that both satisfies me um, personally as an artist but also you know has at least some commercial viability and you know that's a trap and and like I kind of know that's a trap but yet it's it's hard for me to avoid it you know because I don't want to spend time making work that is just so out in left field that like, you know, it's odds of, it's odds of reaching people are, you know, that much more infinitesimal, you know?
1: It, It comes to a question that I think about often, which is why write, you know, why write at all? What's the benefit of, of writing? Like, does it make you a better person? Does it make you do a better job in the relationships with the people that are important to you? Or does it sometimes take you away from those relationships or, isolate you or alienate you just, you know, I hate to throw this out here, I'm not even sure reading um, sometimes is all that useful a thing to cultivate. We have this myth that like, oh, you know, the well-read person curls up with a book and, and you know, sort of, uh, that that's a way of escaping from the troubles of the world and, or their own life. And sometimes I think that's part of the problem. And the way that we would look at somebody who plays video games right. 17 hours a day and say, that's kind of fucked
0: up. Well, okay,
1: We never say that about the person who reads all the time.
0: Right. And, okay, so this is a recent development, you know, a fairly recent development for me where it, I've become, God, and I, almost, I sound like an old, uh, you know, the kind of old person that I used to uh, bristle at <laughs> when I was younger, but I think that... You know, over the past few years, I've I've come around to thinking that it's important for me to be conscious about what I'm ingesting, and not only from a you know we think about you know health and what we eat or whatever how that would affect us, but I also think in terms of what we ingest from a media perspective. Totally. And I first started thinking about it with respect to like cable news, which I was like way too I was it was ingesting way too much of that, and it was. It was, it was physically noticeable. Like my, the level of tension in my body, Yeah, uh, you know, and so I got rid of that, felt better. You think about what books you read and like, you know, what kind of, uh, emotional impact they have on you or what's the point, uh, uh, you know, what, what is the likely outcome of taking that into your consciousness? And I think that stuff matters. I think it's worth thinking about that stuff. And it's not just, you know, across the board, good to be reading a book. You could be reading a book that's highly toxic.
1: Right, and sometimes we see that very explicitly with works that are clearly, you know, have have an ideological element. So, for instance, I was remembering these books from the late 90s, The Left Behind Cycle. Do you remember these things? Sure, yeah. And I remember that they were written by kind of a right-wing uh, Christian fundamentalist types, and the the, the the devil that emerges after the rapture is the Secretary General of the UN, and it was really easy for people on the left to say, oh... These are uh, books that are meant to ideologically mess with you, but why do we not say the same thing about Hemingway or Faulkner or Fitzgerald? And not that I'm suggesting they do or that they have these kind of um, or, or, uh, these kind of e- these kind of evil world-killing <laughs> agendas. But let's not pretend that they have no agenda either,
0: right? Well, yeah, I mean, I think all art uh, is political in some way, right? I mean, there's, totally, it's always an agenda being advanced, and I guess like. When you – being aware of that, uh, do you – you know, you would think that you would have uh, a sense of responsibility to your reader or a sense of responsibility to whoever might pick up one of your books to be advancing an agenda that's – is healthy the right word? Do you know what I'm saying? Well,
1: and, and so here's ultimately where I can't quite solve the problem that you and I are getting around is I can recognize the way we are manipulated by what we consume. I can critique that, and that's what I'm doing in SICK. But I also don't have a really good and wonderful program of my own that's a counter-narrative because my own position of suspicion – here's where I probably did a little too much theoretical thinking in graduate school – has made it sort of impossible for me to really get behind anything, including on some levels my own work. And that's why everything remains kind of jocular and distanced and I'm in a suit – I'm bringing up all these issues, I like to cut things, I like to rip them apart, I I literally take a chainsaw and I chop up books or with a jigsaw, I have all these beautifully (laughs) jigsawed books in my office. But I'm not then giving you the book that is the solution. One, because I know there is no solution, and two, because um, part of what's interesting for me about still making art is whatever that journey is. The day when I sort of figure out what I want to write is probably the day that I'm going to stop being interested in writing.
0: Do you think that's possible, that you'll reach that day?
1: Totally. Um, I think to feel like, oh, it's a lifelong pursuit and one will never reach the end of it is to play into those same ideas of romanticism and genius and authenticity that are, for me, part of the problem in the first place. There may come a time where I just stop writing and maybe take up uh, woodworking and try to put that extension on my deck. I don't think one has less value than the other.
0: Okay. I was going to say, do you have – I mean, I I look at, like, the performative aspect of what you do and how you – meld that into your literary pursuit like do you have um like a filmmaking jones or any other kind of like artistic exploration that you think you might one day explore are there other avenues in the arts that you think you would be well suited to or might be interested in taking on
1: i i'd like to get into podcasting and i was hoping you could me some pointers
0: <laughs> i was hoping I, you, i was hoping you could explain to me why i'm doing this I yeah th- i mean, think that's
1: my next it. question for you
0: Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's kind of like, I think it's actually related to a lot of the things we've been discussing. Uh, And it's like what I respond to most in work is when I feel like someone's really talking to me without Mm -hmm. with with as little artifice as possible or just telling me what they really feel. Because I I guess I want to have like an emotional response to, to the work somehow or at least feel like,
1: I don't know. I get that.
0: Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, I just don't want... Uh, I want it to be kind of stripped down and I want to feel like I'm connecting in some way. And I guess I respond most strongly to work that like, uh, as I like to put it, changes my body temperature where you feel it, you know, and and, uh, I guess that's not necessarily how you approach it. I mean,
1: well, I I like those feelings, but I immediately grow suspicious of them when I find them because I recognize that what seems like a real connection at one moment when repeated becomes a parody of that real connection. And therefore, that's why I don't like to read book after book by the same writer. That's basically a different version of the same book before. Because even if I really enjoyed something about that person's work, you know, Kurt Vonnegut is a great example. The first Kurt Vonnegut book you read, it's great. It's like the world's greatest thing in the world when you're 15. Right. The tenth Kurt Vonnegut book you read, I'm like, eh,
0: he's
1: not doing it for me anymore.
0: <laughs> it gets. I mean, and I love because I'm you know I'm from Indiana, so there's like I right. feel like a strong like sense of affection for him and his work. And it was really important to me as a young person. But it's harder for me to read it now. Like I pick it up and it's a di- completely yeah. different experience. That's
1: everybody's story with Kurt
0: Vonnegut. Okay. So uh, speaking of Kurt Vonnegut, you know, cause I think he, f- he qualifies as a writer like this. Um, but you know, and, and it's, it's not necessarily, uh, well, I guess it, it's usually inspired by one big book that a writer writes, but I guess it can also uh, be in response to a writer's body of work. But I find that certain writers or certain books, uh, tend to inspire, a kind of cultish devotion and the writer and their persona is sort of elevated they're they're kind of like uh, shamanistic almost and readers treat them as such yeah. and you know uh, i always call like female writers who engender this kind of response uh, you know i call them earth mothers because they're they're sort of like medicine women and i guess you could say medicine men too Have you thought about this and, like, why certain works (laughs) inspire that kind because it feels like it's of a piece with what you were saying about your mistrust of the emotional response you might have to a work.
1: Can you – yeah. So just the other day when we did this Proust event, we were lucky enough to have Alexander Heyman, a great Chicago novelist, come up and talk about Proust with me. And in preparation, I was rereading his pretty cool book, The Lazarus Project, And in there, it's all – it's about a lot of things, but part of it's about immigration. And there's a story, which I am now briefly paraphrasing, of a guy who wants to know the meaning of life. And so he decides that he's going to become a teacher. I'm getting this all out of order. And he teaches students, but he's not really satisfied, so he quits. And then he decides he's going to become a stockbroker, and he spends a couple of years amassing money and becomes really successful. But he's still not feeling anything, so he gives all his money away and becomes a pauper. And uh, now he's a beggar, and he's doing everything he can to be a really good beggar and spends years doing that, blah, blah, blah. And he goes through three or four more transformations. Finally, he hears about a guru the top of a mountain on the other part of the world who knows what life is about. So he finds his way to the guru, gets to the base of the mountain, and there's a huge base camp of people there all waiting to see the guru. And he's basically got to get in line and live there. And it takes him months, years to make his way a little further on, and he keeps moving his tent. And finally, when he's almost an old man, he gets to see the guru, and he goes in, and this is his big moment, and he says, guru, can you tell me what life is about? I've done all these things. Tell me what it is. And the guru says, life is a." A river. And the man says, what are you talking about? And the guru says, life is a river. And the man says, I fucking wasted my life waiting for you down there for years and did all this stuff for you to tell me life is a river. That's what you say? Life is a river? And the guru looks at him and says, wait, you mean it's not a river? What is it? <laughs> I was w- hoping you were going to laugh there.
0: At the uh, no, I was just waiting to make sure you were done, but I was also, yeah. I was also trying to process, you know? So,
1: you know, the shaman idea is the same. I am not convinced that anybody knows anything more <laughs> anything more than anybody else, and I'm certainly not convinced that because someone has written a book that in some way because of some skill set or some talent, put that in air quotes, says a particular thing, that I want to invest that person. Um with any more kind of understanding of the world. I am not one to fall for shamans who aren't writers, and so I'm not one to fall for shamans that are writers. I'm immediately looking for um, the man behind the curtain, the snake oil salesman. I, I I just don't buy into it at all. Do you have an example, though, of someone who fits into this?
0: Well, I mean, I think, like, I think Vonnegut is a writer that people attach to as like a seer. I mean, a, you know, I feel like college students do that. Tom Robbins is another guy that yeah. I think that has that happen. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, female examples. I mean, there, there there, there are many, you know. And I guess, like, an interesting question for me is how much of that effect is conscious in the writer as they are working on their books or how much of it is simply created by reader response. Because it just fascinates me that that many readers, you know, because it happens in mass, you know, readers in numbers tend to respond to the writer's work in this way. And I'm sure a lot of the writers who have this happen to them, Kerouac, you know, is another one. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of writers who probably uh, are shocked by it or at least surprised, but there's also a part of me that suspects this is exactly what they were trying to do.
1: (laughs) Well, that's interesting. So I think in some cases, yes, it's a spontaneous mass hallucination or whatever you want to call it, like the Jonestown Massacre, I think. But Jim Jones was also feeding upon the audience and the belief that the audience has. I do not mean to suggest... That authors are cult leaders because I also think that in Vonnegut's case, you know, he hit upon a style or Robbins that spoke to a particular generation of people or Kerouac in a particular way. But they also have savvy marketers and publicists and other people who are helping to feed into that by the design of the book covers where everything is reissued, by just a sense of um, someone writing and existing in the world in which we live in, but existing a little bit of out of step. And that's that romantic idea, right? The writers we look at who we give this cult authority to are the ones who are slightly outside of the mainstream or sometimes really far outside of the mainstream and because they've been able to communicate back to us like ghosts from beyond the grave, we somehow give to their words meaning that we might not take from a writer who um, seems more in lockstep with the way that we live. This is the same thing that we give to Jim Morrison or Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin, right? This sense of um, shamanistic quality because they make an art that we appreciate, but the way that they lived or the way that they chose not to live somehow, and I'm going to say tricks us, into thinking they know more than we do. Well, I was, had a
0: different way I, I was going to say two things. One is that ma- it's like a magic trick. I mean, I think when you read a great book or a book that moves you in a really powerful way. It can seem like the person who created it must have performed some sort of magic to do so, you know, especially as you're an aspirant and you're, you know, maybe not as experienced as a reader or a writer. Yeah. Um, and, um, Oh God, what was the other thing that I was going to say? I just had a brain slip. Morrison shamanistic. Uh, it'll come back to me. But the the point is that, um, it's fascinating, and I guess like, do you have a sense of how you would want readers to receive your work, or is that completely out of your hands? Like, do you have any inclination or any inkling of that as you're creating uh, the books that you make?
1: If I wish to be a shaman, the answer is definitely no. I also feel that way as a teacher, and sometimes I find when over my career as, as a college professor, if I'm getting, for lack of a better word, groovies, like if students are getting really into what I'm saying, I will find myself um, being more distant, you know, sort of not, not in a mean way, but I often begin to think, like, I actually don't want people to become so so interested in my message that they can no longer have the critical space to critique that message. I'm happy to help someone, you know, cut something else apart, but I'm not that interested in there then transferring um, a, a belief or an agenda onto me. When I think of groupies, like, I have two daughters. Those are my groupies. They're the ones who believe – they don't believe everything I say unconditionally, but they're coming the, the closest to that at six and seven. And so when I think about who reads my books, no, I, I feel, again, because I'm moving in kind of an, an indie small press world, that I don't have that much – Say I don't think about it when I'm writing, but what I do try and do is look for opportunities to connect with readers directly, and that's part of the things I enjoy to go back to our earlier conversation about performing and reading, and I almost never will pass up an opportunity to perform because I enjoy that idea of going around and um, hoping that I've given someone an amusing moment while they're in the reading, and maybe that, um, that means something for them, but I don't want it to mean the same thing it would mean for a Kurt Vonnegut reader.
0: Okay, and speaking, I just remembered uh, what i was going what I was going to yeah. say, and it involves Kurt Vonnegut and it goes back to something we talked about uh, at the beginning of the hour involving branding but and it also uh, g- goes back to what we were talking about with respect to literary biography and the kind of detective work that I seem to like um, when it comes to authors that I like. but uh, I read his uh, biography and I actually had um, you know his uh, biographer on this program, and one of the things that stands out is just how savvy. Uh, of an understanding, Vonnegut had of his audience and of his, you know, persona, and you know the the shagginess of his hair was a very deliberate decision yeah. to cultivate this kind of counterculture readership that he had, even though he himself was not really of it in a completely authentic way, and that's something I didn't realize. You know, you look at those photos, and it's like, oh, he just looks like your hippie uncle or whatever, and that 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 was part artifice, you know.
1: Well. And to go back to the earlier point, I think it's all artifice. I think sometimes people don't realize it, but I don't think there's any way to be a writer that is not completely artificial or to do any type of art. Hence, it's in, it's in the word, art, artificial. So it's that, uh, I, I guess I'm not surprised by that. It doesn't make me think less of Vonnegut in some ways, uh, you know, as a kind of, ooh, uh, can, can we look at him as a savvy marketer? It's probably interesting.
0: So my whole my whole gambit to try to, like, be like explicitly bad at brand stuff and to try to be authentic like that's all bullshit no matter what i'm still inauthentic and artificial
1: <laughs> um i would probably say so but i don't mean it in a way that um i, I don't mean it in quite that a uh, pe- pejorative way it's not necessarily a bad thing to be and i could be wrong because i i'm not that guru on the mountain i don't want to be that kind that's just the way it is for me right now i may change my mind again
0: i think we need a guru on the mountain in a, in a white liker bodysuit i'm just saying I think, it would be, Let's I, do it. I think it would be helpful.
1: <laughs> I would yeah, probably want royalties from that for, for, because my savvy savvy marketer ideas.
0: <laughs> well, Davis, listen, this has been really uh, fun and enlightening, and uh, I congratulate No, it you.
1: hasn't been enlightening at all. It has not been enlightening. You don't think so? Well, that's the whole point. Gurus are enlightening.
0: Oh, right, right, Davis. right. Well, it's been uh, interesting.
1: Oh, that's good. That's a better word.
0: And uh, I appreciate the time, and I wish you luck.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on the program. <laughs>
0: Okay, there you go. That is Davis Schneiderman. Go get his book. It's called Sick, and it is available now from Jaded Ibis. You can find Davis online at davisschneiderman.com. He's also on Twitter, where his handle is at davisivad. That's Davis I-V-A-D. You can also find him on the Facebook. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And hey, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program and to access premium content in the full archives. So go get the app. It's free. Uh, otherwise, I'm glad to be home. I'm glad to be done with like you know wedding-related travel for the year. And it's not that I don't like weddings. I actually uh, love a good wedding. It's just exhausting. The travel part of it. But uh, now I'm back. I'm resting comfortably and I'm going to be producing uh, high quality content for you on a twice weekly basis for the foreseeable future. How do you like that? Does that please you? Please remember that the letters of Voltaire take up a total of 98 volumes and that the title for Vanity Fair came to Thackeray when he was almost fast asleep. That is it for now. Uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks to David Schneiderman. Go get his book. I'll be back on Sunday, uh, the day of the Lord. And hopefully I will be in a less uh, fragile emotional state. I feel that I may have done permanent damage to your perception of me today. I hope that hasn't happened. (laughs) Has that happened? Have I crossed some kind of line? Or uh, do you feel like you know me better than ever before? Or uh, are you afraid? Do you smell fear?